You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to echo everything that Marshall has just prayed. And I want to ask now for you to help me in our Father's good pleasure by your Spirit. Help me and help us this morning to receive what you have for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. In 1857, uh, there were some archaeologists in Rome who made a fascinating discovery. They were um, investigating a building in Rome that had once been part of the imperial palace of Caligula. And then later on, it was repurposed to be um, a, a, a boarding school for boys. So, so basically, this building served as like a, a first century uh, high school in Rome. And the archaeologists were in this building, and they discovered in this old Roman high school the oldest known pictorial representation of Jesus' crucifixion. It had been carved into one of the plaster walls, and it dates probably back to the 100s. It was a drawing of a man on a cross with a donkey's head. And then to the side of it, there was a young man looking up at the cross, and then under the drawing, uh, there were these words in all caps, Aleximenos Sebeta Theon. Aleximenos is a young man's name. We can call him Alex. It's his name, Alex. And the phrase says, Alex worships his God. Um, Going by this historical evidence, we can say that Alex, the young man depicted in the image and whose name was used, Alex is the first Christian who we know was bullied in high school. This drawing was graffitied on a wall in this school building to mock Alex because he was a Christian. Because he was a Christian, it meant that he worshiped a God who was crucified. And that was considered absurd. Absurd. Now we know from The New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that the reality of the cross was nearly impossible for people to accept. The the idea that the Messiah, the Savior, would be crucified was something that Jewish people stumbled over, and it was something that Greeks or or Greco-Roman teenagers like Alex and his friends, they would have thought this was absolutely foolish. Paul tells us this in 1, 1 Corinthians. The cross was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It made no sense to people that a Savior would die. It especially made no sense that a Savior who claimed to be God would suffer and die. People thought the whole thing was absurd, and this is a really big deal. We need to appreciate this. Think think about it. The central claim of the gospel, like the very heart of Christianity, is that Jesus, God the Son, 
suffered and died on a cross to save sinners. And that claim, that fact, the very heart of our faith was nonsense to most people at the time that the book of Hebrews was written. Which means, if we're tracking with this book, part of the pressure on these first readers, on these early Christians, part of the pressure for them to abandon Jesus was the popular mindset of that day. It was that first off, there's no way that God would become man. There's no way that God would become man. And then secondly, even if such a thing were so, there is certainly no way that God would become a man and suffer. That was the, that was the thinking in the air. That was the, the mindset of the time. And so the book of Hebrews in chapter one starts and says, oh, Jesus, absolutely, is God become man. And now in chapter two, Hebrews says, and Jesus suffered. That's the focus of verses 10 to 18. As we've already seen, and Pastor Kenny mentioned this last week, this passage, chapter two, is wonderfully dense. There are single words and phrases in this passage that are worth our time and meditation, and we could spend several weeks on this one chapter. But for today, what I want us to do is I want us to, to look at this passage as a whole, and I want us to see that chapter two is mainly answering one big question. There's one big question that's sort of beneath these verses in chapter two, and that question is, why did Jesus suffer? That's the main question. And I wonder if that's something that you've thought of before. Have you, have you, have you had that question yourself? Have you ever thought before, like, why the cross? Couldn't God have saved us another way? I mean, did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus suffer? This passage answers that question, and we're going to see here at least three reasons why. Here's the first reason. Jesus suffered because it was by God's design. We start here. Look, look here in, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. The first time that suffering is mentioned in Hebrews is chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus, who humbled himself to become a man, was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Right away, we're not used to seeing those two words together. The idea of being crowned with glory and honor and the suffering of death, those two things sound like opposites, right? And yet here they are in the same sentence, and the writer of Hebrews is saying that the crowning actually came through the suffering. It was, it was cross, then crown. It was crowned through cross. The writer of Hebrews tells us, look at the end of verse 9, Jesus suffered so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. Uh, if we just stopped right here, if we just stopped at verse 9, we would know something already very important about the cross. We would know that the suffering of Jesus was the path to his glory and the suffering of Jesus was intentional. Those little words there in verse 9 tell us this, those little words there, because and so that. Those words imply purpose. This tells us that God was doing something at the cross. 
That's important to know. God was doing something at the cross. We have to start here. Does that make sense in verse 9? Just starting there. God was doing something at the cross. The cross, in other words, was not an accident. It wasn't an accident. God was doing something. We start there in verse 9. Now in verse 10, the writer of Hebrews is going to just drive this point home. In verse 10, he starts to build the case that the suffering of Jesus was not only intentional, but it was right. Look at verse 10, he says this plainly, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Those first four words there in verse 10, look at that. For it was fitting. You see that? In other words, it was appropriate. It was right. That's what the word means. It does not mean tragedy or mistake or fiasco or accident. As horrible as the suffering of Jesus was, the writer of Hebrews wants to be clear that it was the way it had to be. It was the right thing. It was the right way. And to emphasize this point, look at how the writer of Hebrews refers to God. This is verse 10. He says, he for whom and by whom all things exist. Now we know he's talking about God here. God is the he. And he could have just said God in verse 10. So why does he describe God in this phrase? Well, when you hear the phrase, what comes into your mind? What do you think when you hear the phrase, he for whom and by whom all things exist? When you hear that, what do you think? I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I think he for whom and by whom all things exist, I'm thinking that this is somebody who can do whatever they want, right? For whom and by whom everything that is exists. This God who we're talking about here is sovereign over everything. He can do whatever he pleases. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that this God in his sovereignty was pleased to save sons and daughters through a Savior who suffered. The cross was by God's design. There's no accident here. This is by God's design. It was fitting. It was right. The cross was the right way for God to save his people. And that's the first answer to the main question here. The main question, why did Jesus suffer? The first answer is because it was by God's design. It was right. Here's the second thing, Jesus suffered because we suffer. And I I need to say that um, this is really the main answer in the passage, okay? The main question is why did Jesus suffer? The main answer is because we suffer. The writer of Hebrews is going to spend most of his time just belaboring this answer, okay? So I just want to tell you that, heads up. He's going to repeat this over and over again. I want us to see it here in verse 10. He starts the argument here. He says, it was fitting, it was right that God for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That phrase, perfect through suffering, what does that mean? Well, the word perfect here is not talking about moral perfection, but it's talking about completeness. 
And in particular, this is talking about completeness as the founder of their salvation. So another way to say it is that this idea of completeness is completeness in Jesus' vocational role as founder. The word founder here in verse 10 is really important. Sometimes it's translated pioneer or author, or it could be translated leader. That's a good translation for it. The word is used four other times in the New Testament. Luke uses it twice in, uh, in the book of Acts, and it's used twice here in Hebrews. And in all four uses, the word is always in reference to Jesus. And commentators on this passage say that 100% that Jesus being called a leader here, the leader, the founder, is an allusion to Moses. And Moses is going to be mentioned in just a few verses at the beginning of chapter 3. And so this is an allusion to him. The idea is that like Moses was the founder or the leader of God's people in the first Exodus salvation, Jesus, like Moses, is the founder and leader of God's people in the final Exodus salvation. And part of what it means for Jesus to fulfill that role of founder leader is to suffer. One way to think about it is, is that when Jesus, pretend here, okay, when God wrote the job description for Jesus as the founder leader of his people's salvation, that job description included suffering. Suffering, Jesus' suffering completes the founder job description, okay? So you guys know what a job description, imagine this for a minute. Okay, maybe a little silly, but imagine a one-page document job description, okay? This is the job description for Jesus as the founder of our salvation, and there's a handful of bullet points, uh, bullet points on this document that's listing out the responsibilities and the duties to fulfill this role. And suffering is one of the bullet points on that document. It's one of the bullet points on this job description, but here's the thing, okay? Suffering is actually a sub-point of a larger bullet point, okay? Track with me. Job description, one-page document. The suffering of Jesus is by God's design. It's a bullet point on his job description as the founder of our salvation. But suffering is actually included under the larger bullet point that Jesus became a man. Part of becoming a man, part of truly sharing in real humanity meant that Jesus had to experience suffering. He had to. That is the main argument that the writer of Hebrews is now going to make over and over again. Okay? He's going to say it over and over again. The focus in this passage is that Jesus really did become human, and he really did experience a humanity like ours. And because as humans we suffer, Jesus experienced suffering. It's part of what it means to be a human. It's amazing. It's really amazing that in this section, the way that the writer continues to argue that Jesus suffered is he argues that Jesus really became a human. 
That's the way he makes his argument. The writer of Hebrews makes his argument for why Jesus suffered by showing that Jesus was really like us. Look at verse 11. He's going to repeat it. He's going to say this over and over again. Verse 11, Jesus is fully God. He's fully human. He really does know what it's like to be human. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies, which is Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, that's all of us who trust in Jesus, they or we, Jesus and us, the writer's talking about, Jesus and us all have one source. And in our English translations, we add the word source, but literally it just says all of one. Jesus and us are all of one. The idea is that Jesus and us are together. We're the same family, same family, all of one, which means that Jesus has true solidarity with us. That's why we see the end of verse 11 here, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, us. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We're going to come back to this sentence, but for now, I just want you to see that Jesus affirms our solidarity. He says of us, we're the same. Yeah, we're the same. We're together, Jesus says. And that is such an important point for the writer of Hebrews that he gives us three Old Testament quotations to support it, okay? And we, we have to look at these, okay? I thought, man, did we cut this? We, this is going to take a minute, okay? But I, I, we have to see how these Old Testament quotations are working. I think it's fascinating. So look, if, if you appreciate the Bible, if you, you love the Word of God, this is for you, okay? You're going to love it, all right? Dig in here. If you're still kind of like, I'm not sure about the Bible, just hold on, okay? Maybe this will convince you that this is an amazing book, okay? In, in these quotations, look at this. Each of these quotations, this is verses 12 and 13, in each of these quotations, the writer of Hebrews has in view the original context of where these verses are from. So I think what he wants us to do is when we read these quotes, we're supposed to remember what's going on in the places where these quotes come from. Okay, this is verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is a quote from Psalm 22, verse 22. You can go there and read it. Psalm 22 is one of the most, the most widely quoted messianic psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted over and over again. This was the psalm that Jesus quoted while he was hanging on the cross. You probably heard the, the phrase when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. That's this psalm. If you go look at the psalm, the psalm is mainly about the Messiah's suffering. But it also, toward the end of the psalm, it, it points to the Messiah's future exaltation. There's two parts to the psalm. And the turning point of the psalm, the place where it goes from suffering to exaltation, that happens in verse 22, which is the verse that the writer of Hebrews is quoting here. In Psalm 22, David the psalmist, he says that on the other side of the Messiah's suffering, when the Messiah comes through this suffering, he will testify of God's name to his brothers. And his brothers in the next line are called the congregation, which is the word for church. 
So Psalm 22 shows us, what is it? Psalm 22 shows us that the Messiah suffers. He endures through suffering, and then he has brothers. And the writer of Hebrews quotes this and is like, see? See what I'm saying about Jesus? We have solidarity. Then in verse 13, he quotes from Isaiah 8, and this is uh, in verses 17 and 18 of, of Isaiah 8. And for the context of Isaiah 8, uh, the people of Judah are under a threat. If you, you, can, you can see this if you go there and read it, you can pick it right up. The Assyrian army is about to invade and, and just absolutely demolish the people of Judah. And so they are terrified of this. The, the people, they're in panic because they know that this enemy army is coming. And so they're, they're worried and they're, they're scared. But then God says to Isaiah, he says, hey, don't be afraid like everyone else. I know this is hard. I know that there is suffering that you're going to experience here, but I'm going to bring you through the suffering. That's what God says to Isaiah. And so Isaiah, in response to what God says, Isaiah says, okay. This is Isaiah 8, verse 17. He says, okay, I'm going to wait for Yahweh. He knows suffering is coming, and Isaiah says, I will hope in him. I will hope in the Lord. And so the writer of Hebrews, he quotes that verse here. That's Isaiah 8, verse 17, is a verse about hoping in God in the midst of suffering. And the writer of Hebrews says, okay, right here. And then, verse 18 of Isaiah 8, this is really important. This part, they go together. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, the very next verse, Isaiah says this. He says, behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts. What does that mean? Well, in the context, if we were to dig in and look a little bit earlier in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, Isaiah has two sons. God gives him two sons, and God gives these two sons names, special names, that symbolize the faithful remnant of God's people who trust in God and endure through suffering. And so in verse 17, Isaiah speaks about his own faith, and he says, Isaiah says, I will put my trust in him. I will trust in God. And then in verse 18, Isaiah says that it's, it's not just his faith that he's talking about, but it's the faith that he shares with the children that God gave him. What Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18, he says, I have a shared hope. I have a shared faith through suffering with these children that God has given me. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus says the same thing about us. The words of the prophet Isaiah are the words that Jesus speaks about us. In verse 14, see how he repeats the word children? He's talking about us. He's, he's referring back to Isaiah 8.18, and now he's talking about us children. What's implied here is that we are the children of God. We who trust in Jesus are the children of God, and God gave us to Jesus 
God's children, he gave us to Jesus as Jesus' brothers. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, again, is that Jesus is with us. We have solidarity with him. We are of one with Jesus. And I want to make sure that we get here, this is kind of a side note, I want to make sure that we get the familial references in this passage, okay? It could be a bit confusing. I, I just was having a conversation uh, this past week with a kindergartner. I was uh, kind of about this. We were riding down the road, and uh, he was in the back of the car, and he casually mentioned, he casually mentioned that, that God and Jesus were brothers. And I was, you know, hit the brakes, spew my coffee everywhere, you know. <laughs> pulled over to the side of the road. Um, no, I didn't do any of that, but it, it can be, you know, sometimes the Trinity is not necessarily, you know, easy. And so we, we had a conversation about the Trinity and, and about how we, as the people of God, how we relate to God the Father and how we relate to God the Son. And what's amazing is that this passage shows us, this passage tells us how. First of all, the, the metaphor of the family is important. We, we, we kind of take it for granted. This, this whole passage assumes the family metaphor, okay? And in this passage, we're referred to a lot, us, and we're called two different names, two different titles. Those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are saved, in this passage, we are called sons and children in verses 10 and 14, and we are called brothers in verses 11, 12, and 17. Sons and children, sons and daughters, children, brothers, which implies brothers and sisters, that is all about us. The writer's talking about us here, okay? So I just want to be clear in how we think about this. When we are called sons and daughters, or when we're called children, that's in relation to God the Father. We are the children of God. We are the sons and daughters of God. The sons and daughters of God our Father. Pastor says this now. When we're called brothers, Aldelfoy implies brothers and sisters. When we're called brothers and sisters, that's in relation to Jesus. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Think about this, okay? I want you just to, we know this, but just I want to get it clear here for us. God is our Father. We're His sons and daughters. Jesus is our brother. We are His brothers and sisters. And this is really important now. We have to get that clear if we're going to understand the passage. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus, therefore, because we are God's children, And because Jesus is our brother, because we share in flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same things. It comes back to solidarity. This is really simple. Jesus was really like us, which means he experienced the same things that we do. And because we, his fellow brothers and sisters, because we share in flesh and blood and sweat and snot and fingernails and all human stuff like that, because we share in that, Jesus shared in that. 
Because that is of us as humans, that was of Jesus. He experienced that. He partook of the same things, verse 14. And the same things that the writer's talking about here includes suffering. That's the highlight, and that's why in the next verse, the end of 14 and 15, the focus is on our mortality, which is what Marshall focused on in his prayer. We don't have time to look a ton at this, but I just I want to highlight here that mortality and suffering go together. Death is a result of suffering. Remember that back in verse 9, the phrase is the suffering of death. These two things go together. Death is a threat that hangs over us all, all the time. Death reminds us, the threat of death reminds us that we are not invincible, but we are bound and confined and lower. And if Jesus really became a human, then he must experience what that is like, and he did. He did. That's what verse 16 is saying. Jesus didn't come to save angels. He came to save humans, which means he came to save mortals like us, the offspring of Abraham, people in flesh and blood. And because of that, verse 17, because Jesus came to save real people, because he came to save his brothers and his sisters, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The same argument, again. He says it again. This is the same thing that we already read in verse 10. The suffering of Jesus was right. The suffering of Jesus was fitting. And here we see the suffering of Jesus was necessary. It had to be. It had to be that Jesus was made like us, became like us in every respect, even suffering. Jesus, he has such solidarity with us. He became so actually human, like us, that when you experience hurt, Jesus knows what that is like. Hurt disappointment, anxiety, confinement, humanity. Jesus knows what it's like. He gets us. He gets you. And that's what makes him a merciful and faithful high priest, which is how he made atonement for our sins. It's how he intercedes for us. And look, the high priest's comment here, that is a whole sermon, okay? And we don't have time today. We're going to get there in chapter, chapter 4 and chapter 5. But I want to just come back to the main question. The main question in the passage, why did Jesus suffer? Why did he suffer? Well, Jesus suffered because we suffer. 
Jesus really did become human and he really did experience a humanity like ours. And because we as humans suffer, Jesus experienced suffering. Jesus suffered because it was by God's design. Jesus suffered because we suffer. And here's the third and final point. Jesus suffered because now he is able to help us. This is verse 18. The writer is just following the same train of thought we've been looking at. You can see this in verse 18. It begins with the word for, okay? That tells us that what the writer is about to say is serving as a ground, a grounding to what he has just previously said. And I think it makes sense to understand verse 18, not just to be grounding verse 17, but I think it actually grounds the entire section here. I think verse 18 sort of summarizes the entire argument of Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 18. For... Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus has experienced real humanity, even suffering, he is able to help us in our humanity. And a couple key words here I want to highlight are the words tempted and help, okay? How we understand tempted is going to guide us on how we understand help. What kind of help does the writer have in mind, right? At one level, this could be a very general kind of help, right? It could could be a general kind of temptation, a general kind of temptation, a very general kind of help. But I want you to consider this for a minute. In light of what we've seen in these verses, and in light of the main exhortation of the book of Hebrews to, to endure in faith, I think the writer of Hebrews is thinking about temptation more narrowly, okay? We know that Jesus was tempted in general. Jesus was tempted in all kinds of ways, in every kind of way. But we know he was especially tempted to abandon God, to neglect his calling, and to shrink back because of the pressure. We know this because of the temptations we see of Jesus, Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what Jesus experienced instead of abandoning God and neglecting his calling or shrinking back, what Jesus experienced because he withstood those temptations was suffering. Jesus suffered all the way through those temptations to the other side of faithfulness. He never gave into sin. He never sinned. He gets it. He gets us. He gets every temptation. And yet he never sinned. And he especially never sinned. The sin of apostasy. Jesus never sinned, including the sin of apostasy, which means he can help you. He can help you. When you are pressured, when, 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 you, when you are tempted, when you think maybe I should abandon God, when you think maybe I should forsake faith, when you think that, remember Jesus has been there. And because he has been there, Jesus can help you. He can help you. And get this, 
because Jesus can help us in this biggest, most serious temptation, the temptation of apostasy, because Jesus can help us there, Jesus can help us anywhere. Several years ago, uh, when our, our oldest daughter was a toddler, she was around the age when she just was learning how to you know, change and, and, and dress herself. Uh, one morning, I, I heard her from her room. She was screaming in a panic. She was, Jesus, help me! Jesus, help me! Jesus, help me! And I, I hear it, and of course, I go running, and I you know, open the door, and I go in, and apparently, she was trying to take off her pajamas, and her shirt got stuck like over her head, and so she's kind of like this, and her shirt was over her head, and she just was stuck, and she was asking Jesus to help her, okay? And because Jesus can help her endure in faith, He can help her there. Jesus can help with pajamas. He did. He did. He helped her. Because I walked in the room, and I found the sleeves, and just boop, just like that. Jesus answered her prayer. He did. She asked him for help, and he helped her. And I love that word help. See, I love the word help because help is an, earth, it's an earthy word, right? It is a practical word, help, help, help. It can be super particular or it can be super general, right? Like, like right now, I need help with the transmission of my van because there's a little message that comes up that says help, transmission needs help, right? Particular, I need, the transmission needs help. And, and I need help as a man. I need help as a pastor, I need help as a husband, I need help as a dad. And I need Jesus' help in all those things. And so do you. You need Jesus' help. We need His help everywhere. We need His help to believe. We need His help to live. We need His help to do anything. And I just I wonder, what do you think Jesus thinks about that? Okay? What do you think Jesus thinks about us needing his help all the time? Because we do. What's he think about that? I think there's something wonderful in this passage. Jesus can help us as humans because he knows what it's like to be human. But unlike humans, because Jesus is also God, he never wearies of helping us. There's never a moment when we cry out to Jesus for help and he thinks, not again. The pajamas again. Never. In fact, it's just the opposite. When we cry to Jesus for help, he thinks, I've been there. I know. I know what they're going through. We're together in this. We're of one. 
And of that togetherness in verse 11, verse 11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, his brothers, his brothers and sisters. I think there's a little theme that we're going to see in Hebrews, a few different places where we read that God the Father and Jesus our brother, we read what they think of us. We'll see this a few times. How does, how does Jesus view us? Well, Jesus has been there. Whatever you got, he's seen it. He's been there. He's in some way experienced it. He knows what we're up against. He has been tempted like us, and he knows that we have failed a thousand times in a thousand ways in places that he never failed, right? He's perfect. He's sinless. What does he think of us? Ask yourself that question. Ask yourself, what does Jesus think of me? Because he knows you. He knows where you're at. What's he think of me? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his, hear this, hear this. The Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother. He is not ashamed to call you his sister. He claims you openly in front of everyone, no matter the pressure on you, no matter the popular mindset, no matter what someone might graffiti on a wall. Whatever you got going on, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He gladly calls you his brother and his sister. He claims you, and when he hears your prayers, when he hears you cry out to him, he thinks, my brother, my sister, I can help you. I can help you. That's why he suffered. And that's what brings us to the table. And this morning, before, before we receive the bread and the cup at the table, I want to I wanna invite you in this moment to, to ask Jesus for help. I want to give us the time, a minute to do that. In this room, in a room like this, with all the souls in this room, only God knows all the stuff that we got going on, right? There are heavy things. There are hard things. There's hurt in here. There's confusion in here. There are doubts in here. There are particular things that come to your mind, that have come to your mind right now when I said that. And then there are just general things. Whatever those things might be, whatever it is that you're going through, ask Jesus to help you, okay? I'm going to lead us in a prayer for a minute after a, a, a few seconds of silence, but be, this morning I want to, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus has been here, because he knows us, would you ask him to help you this morning, right now?
Lord Jesus, because of who you are and because of what you have done and because of the wonders you tell us here in your word, help us. Amen. Amen. And now at this table, we're going to remember the death of Jesus for us. We're going to remember his death. We're going to give him praise. He has saved us. He claims us. And now we get to celebrate his great salvation. As we serve the bread and the cup, uh, it's for those of you who trust in Jesus. It's for this table is for the sons and daughters of God, the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And so if that is you, I invite you to eat and to drink with us. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.